Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. Uh, Library of Mistakes is a a library full of books, one of those things, in Edinburgh, Uh, and we are devoted to the promotion and understanding of financial history. I'm delighted today to have with me James Falk, author of The Financial Cold War, a new book subtitled A View of Sino-U.S. Relations from the Financial Markets. Uh, Apart from being an author, James also for many years was at the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. Uh, And for those of you who don't know, that means James has been on the front line of witnessing the opening up of China to capital inflows, and particularly of portfolio flows into into bonds and equities. Uh, Financial Cold War, James, it seems a very poignant moment to be talking about such things. We are witnessing the mobilization of many things to contain Russia, which are all financial uh, capital flows, uh, access of the central bank to its assets, access of the commercial system to SWIFT. Uh, When you wrote this book, uh, is this what you meant by financial cold war, or do you mean something bigger and larger than that? Actually, I I did mean something bigger and larger. And what you're, you're witnessing today that in terms of sanctions and, and other measures taken against Russia is something that I call geoeconomic warfare. What, what I meant by financial cold war in my, my definition in the book is the slow burn issues that are driving conflict between China and the United States many of which are not very well understood and which have crept up. The the sanctions and tariffs and trade wars and so forth in my book is already the financial cold war heating up into a financial hot war. Okay, a financial hot war. Well, let's let's talk about that. I mean, heating up to what what should we expect? I mean, you're making a forecast when you say it's becoming a financial hot war. So where do you think it's going? Well, in, in terms of the, the China-U.S. relation, the, the hot war has really started in terms of the Trump trade tariffs, and those haven't been taken off by the Biden administration, notwithstanding, I think, uh, now fairly clear evidence that they haven't been particularly effective in uh, reducing imports from China, and in fact, I think right now the American public are bearing quite a significant burden of these because ultimately the increased cost is leading into inflation for U.S. consumers. And and on the issue of of capital as well, the um, financial cold war, we have just looked at the numbers. Foreigners now have, according to the Chinese statistics, portfolio assets valued at two trillion U.S. dollars in domestic RMB-denominated assets, and that will be bonds uh, and equities primarily. Does this form part of a financial cold war, this this opening that China has been through? I just looked 10 years ago, this was $500 billion, now it's $2 trillion. What can we expect in terms of the relationship and the ability of capital to flow freely between, well, not just these two countries, but between the developed world and, and China? Will that form part of this, this cold war? Well, the, the, the financial cold war really sort of finds its origins in the the is really the instability or the imbalances that have been driven by the structure of the international monetary system and national financial policies and part of 
the imbalances have been driven by the volatility of capital flows in and out of countries. Uh, I think if you take China aside for a moment and, and look at what happened through the 1980s and 1990s to a whole series of emerging markets, really the, the dependency on the US dollar that many of those countries, governments and corporates faced created the, the risk of instability when there was currency volatility that saw a decline in their currency values against the US dollar. And that, that had a, a number of knock-on destabilizing effects. As you, you pointed out in, in your book on the Asian financial crisis, after the Asian financial crisis, governments got a lot smarter or emerging markets governments got a lot smarter about how they dealt with these things. And they built up these huge reserves of dollar holdings to ensure themselves against those periodic bouts of volatility, which really ripped through and had huge devastating consequences for their societies. Because when they they couldn't repay their dollar loans, that led to corporate insolvencies, it led to job losses, and it led to a huge amount of economic misery, misery for those countries. And so they started insuring themselves against the, the periodic bouts of dollar volatility. And that led to more and more issuance of U.S. securities, particularly in, in, the, in the run-up to the global financial crisis, that there was a huge demand for high-grade securities, particularly U.S. treasuries. And because banks started looking to satisfy that demand, they started effectively manufacturing these AAA-graded credits out of U.S. subprime mortgages, which led to a catastrophic crisis in global financial markets that had very devastating effects all around the world. So when we talk about when we talk about financial cold war, what I'm talking about is the is these financial phenomena that are not particularly well understood, which have been driving instability and particularly more recently since the global financial crisis have been contributing to very rapid rises in wealth and income inequality. These in turn are stoking significant social tensions in both China and America and contributing to the conflict between the two countries. So when, when you ask me about the when you ask me about the question where are these going and what what can we expect? These notwithstanding the problem of rising wealth and income inequality being quite well recognized now these problems haven't been addressed or tackled. And unfortunately, without addressing or tackling them, I foresee that these problems are only likely to get worse. That, in financial terms, given that that, that's become a major means of geopolitical confrontation now, I think could see a significant further ratcheting up of things like Paris, things like sanctions, and possibly a curtailment of capital flows around the world, which I believe ultimately 
will make us all the poorer, but which uh, I think are a direct response to the government's respective or, or governments around the world's failure to address the, the underlying problems. I mean, one of the things the book does exceptionally well is explain the cost of having the dollar as a reserve currency. We always focus on the on the the asset side of that, the so-called exorbitant privilege. Uh, but your book does outline some of the social costs that America's had to pay for this, and the financialization of the economy, which I agree with you is a, is a relation is a, is a direct cause of this. So it's built some structural frailty within America, within American society, not just within American finance, as we witnessed in two thousand seven to. 2008, but your book is very, you know, very straightforward and clear on some fragilities that have built up also in China and the structure of the Chinese system. And you say that there needs to be some significant structural reform in China. Uh, I wanted to ask you in that relationship, the uh, new policy, it's not a new policy, it's an emphasizing an old policy of common prosperity in China. In terms of the issues you raise in the book and the fragilities in China, where do you think the pursuit of common prosperity takes the Chinese system? Look, I mean, China's come a very long way. And China's growth, you know, apart from it having basically hit rock bottom during the Cultural Revolution, and so it was difficult to find ways of further going down. The only way at that point was up. But the reason why China saw the kind of explosive growth that it experienced over the last 40 years had a lot to do with a massive demographic dividend that the country experienced. So at the same time as Deng Xiaoping went and began on the process of reform and opening up, the country was also seeing a, a huge segment of its population hit working age, like, like a lot of countries after the Second World War. China had had a significant population boom. On top of that, during the 1980s, you had many people who had been marginalized politically and sent out to the countryside returning to China's cities and rejoining the workforce. On top of that, in the late 1970s, you had the institution of the one-child policy. And so the, the number of dependents per working age person in China fell very significantly at the same time as you had this massive expansion in working age population. And so China's prosperity then came down to, on top of this large labor force, it came down to having to work out how to bring in capital and how to modernize technologically. There was big social conflict at the time in China, both in society and frankly also within the political structure as to how much power to give the, the state relative to, to financial markets. And don't forget that you know this was this was a communist system, so there's a huge distrust of financial markets at the time. And what one of the consequences of the the debate and conflict in the system was that China largely issued the, the large-scale use of foreign debt in its growth, which meant that it had to find the capital from somewhere. And the place where it found that capital from was that the Chinese government pursued policies that basically suppressed consumption. 
And because of the government's control of the Chinese state-owned banking system, they were able to take the deposits that started making their way into the, the banking system by all these people hitting the workforce and, and starting to earn. They were able to take that money and direct it towards infrastructure spending and development, which is what enabled the, the economic miracle and the growth of the huge export sector that you subsequently saw from the late 90s, from the late 90s onwards. But in doing that, it created a number of there were a number of underlying structural problems with that system. So one is that an investment-led economy, one where GDP growth is very significantly dependent on continued pouring of concrete and infrastructure development and building of houses, ultimately is not going to work if your population starts declining. And that's where we've hit now in China. The working age population has already been declining for several years. And in absolute terms, the population is going to start declining, which means that, you know, apart from the, the, the workforce that has really helped drive China's growth, apart from that dissipating significantly over the coming decades, and already you're seeing that, that the rises in wage rates that that's, that's, that's led to is driving a lot of very labor cost sensitive industries now to move to places like Vietnam, Bangladesh, Cambodia to take advantage of lower costs. But what, what's more is that like you saw in Japan from the, the peak of the, the Japanese bubble in, in the late 1980s to now is that when you have a when you have a declining working uh, age population and a decline in the absolute population, you tend to see asset price decreases or asset price deflation. And what one of the one of the big structural problems that China has got is that because the state has really used its control over the financial system to drive investment into its own priorities. The Chinese capital markets never really came to create that true market-based price discovery function. So China's equity markets and, and to some extent its debt markets are not reflecting true market prices. And so for, for most ordinary savers, that they've become distrusted as a means of really saving. In its place, China has, or Chinese citizens have significantly allocated their savings towards real estate. So I, I think residential housing accounts for around about 65 billion in terms of China's wealth and, and savings. And it's about 78% of the allocation of China's urban households' total savings. The, the next largest pool is uh, bank deposits. So around about, there's around about 35 trillion US dollars sitting in bank deposits. And clearly, as China's population ages, 
and needs to start finding some sort of income to live on in retirement, that portfolio allocation is not likely to generate the sort of returns that are going to see China's old age pensioners through their retirements. They're also not going to be able to rely on the traditional Chinese means of old age care, which is basically depending on one's children, because the the fact is the one child policy now having run for a couple of generations means that by 2050, for every working age, for every 2.1 working age population, there's going to be one dependent. That is just not Gonna the the numbers just don't work. The maths just don't work. Chinese young people are not going to be able to support. You know, single children are not going to be able to support two parents and possibly even two sets of grandparents. And so, something's got to give. One part of that which China's been doing, and part of which I've been involved in, or was involved in when I was working at the Hong Kong Exchange was finding means for Chinese investors to start putting more of their savings into capital markets. So reduce the reliance on property markets and to allocate more of the cash sitting in bank deposits into stocks and bonds that were likely to generate the returns that would see them through their retirements. Other parts of other parts of the, the system have been social welfare reforms, and China has started to significantly increase its social welfare allocation and, and basic public provision. But over time, inevitably, I believe the Chinese government will have to significantly increase its amount of borrowing from international markets to keep funding all of its public spending priorities. And that, that's something which it's, it's still fundamentally struggling with because there are competing objectives. Although it wants to internationalize the, the demand for, for sovereign credit, and it's, it's, done, it's done quite a good job of that, still without the, the, the types of efficiency that international investors get on their holdings of other types of sovereign debt, particularly U.S. treasuries, it is very difficult for Chinese sovereign bonds to compete against the alternative. One of the big problems is the lack of an offshore repo market that enables people to get short-term liquidity from their Chinese sovereign bond holdings. Other problems are the lack of hedging tools, so people can't necessarily hedge their currency exposure or their interest rate exposure very cheaply or easily compared with what what they're able to do in in dollar markets. And so in that sense, you know, there's still big gaps, but China is also conflicted because one, it wants to continue to maintain some level of control over capital allocation within its society. It also doesn't want to it doesn't want to see the creation of a massive offshore renminbi market that completely lies outside of its control because that exposes it to significant capital or exposes it to the mercy of volatile capital markets. 
which is one of the problems that, that the US has faced. And so there are, there are a number of very difficult competing objectives that the Chinese government's trying to navigate. And I, I don't necessarily think that it's going to be able to square the system without giving up some of the some of the key things that it wants to hold on to. I mean, you very well summed up a system of financial repression, which has allowed China to achieve much in terms of growth, but potentially at the expense of some fairly poor capital allocation. Your solution is to move towards a more market system. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence of that, or do, or do you disagree? I mean, one of the ways that you could attempt to do this is not allowing a more market system to deliver higher returns on, on assets and portfolio assets, but to simply relocate some of the wealth of corporations to people. And we have in the last few years seen quite a few attacks on corporate profits, sometimes on the individual corporation, actually more often on the individual corporation, whether that's attack on their power or their profits, uh, it still amounts to an attack. So if giving up control seems to be and giving up the financial repression is perhaps not the way forward, not the way the political incumbents want to go, is it perhaps a move to reallocate some of the wealth of society away from the corporation to the individuals? Is that a route that we might expect China to go to the outsider looking in? There seems to be sort of initial evidence that that may be one of the routes to common prosperity while maintaining control rather than relinquishing control. It's a very good question, Russell. And, and I think actually the, the reality is that they would like to do both. So what one aspect of it is certainly wealth reallocation domestically through common prosperity. Now, that wealth reallocation, I think, encompasses a number of different things. I mean, there, there's the, the end to traditional forms of, of capital repression, which, which include things like suppressing the, the level of interest rates paid by banks or, or paid by, you know, on the, the borrowings of state-owned enterprises. But the, the other aspects, the, the other aspects of that are that China, like the U.S. and, and many countries now, faces a significant problem of very large businesses able to ex, able to flex their muscles and, and exercise a, a, an inordinate amount of power, not just over the pricing to consumer, but over the, the labor rates and, and labor markets. And, and China has moved through the common prosperity to start addressing some of the monopoly problems that have built up in its domestic market. And I think when, when you look at you know, some, of the, some of the investigations that have been initiated on things like Alibaba, on companies like Alibaba and Tencent and so forth, you, you have to look at it in that context as well. And so that that's certainly that, that's certainly a part of it. But equally, it's not that China does not want to allow its citizens to invest more into capital markets, and it is not that China doesn't want to allow its citizens to invest more internationally. From a pension savings perspective, they recognize that it would be entirely desirable and in keeping with their strategic objectives to allow their investors to get greater international diversification in their pension savings. 
that the problem that China faces, though, is that when, when you look at the, the channels for Chinese investors to invest outside mainland China beyond Hong Kong today, Chinese investors are entirely dependent on a system of safekeeping, depositories, custodians, and payments channels that are heavily controlled or influenced either by the US or other Western countries. And while you know, this is probably not the time to be lamenting the, the travails that the Russians have faced, that the reality is that Chinese policymakers have looked at things like the sanctions that were put on Russia after 2014. And they've grown increasingly nervous about this in that there are significant, there are significant potential conflicts between China and America across a a wide range of areas. And Chinese policymakers do not want to, don't feel it would be prudent to put the country at the kind of financial security risk that allowing their investors to go offshore and be stuck in this Western controlled system of custodians, depositories, and payment channels would entail. And so that that's been a key that, that's been a key problem for China. And you know, although it's made some moves to try and reduce its dependency on, on Western payment settlement payments and settlement system, such as the, the SIPS system and such as the development of central bank digital currency, the reality is that the, the incumbents at the moment are so dominant, it's very difficult for China to get around them. And, and th- therein lies you know, therein lies the nub of the conundrum because if you look at it from the perspective of the West and America in particular, it, it would be entirely desirable to see more Chinese portfolio flows come offshore, not least because that $35 trillion sitting in Chinese bank deposits represents the largest untapped pool of capital in the world today. If that were invested in infrastructure and innovation and development around the rest of the world, it could do an awful lot of good. Well, China will be looking at what's happening to Russia. As you say, they have been worried about the leverage that America and the, and the other parts of the developed world have. One of the things we have to think about is, will they accelerate plans to do something about it? You've mentioned SIPs, which is a difficult thing, I think, for them to push too far. Uh, there is lots of speculation, of course, that somehow China may begin to create some form of reserve currency that would be acceptable to to others. Now, that currently, I think it's four percent of global reserves are held in RMB, and nearly all of that is held by Mr. Putin, so uh, uh, and by and by Russia. So the uh, the, the the attempt to get more uh, holdings of RMB by uh, the foreign central banks hasn't worked. Uh, is there anything you think they can do to to change that? I mean, there's lots of speculation that a digital currency may, for for some reason, change that, or even China has reasonable gold reserves that it could, for international settlements, create some sort of 
kind of settlement, which is linked to uh, uh, gold deposits. Uh, you know, in the, in the book, I think you are skeptical that China's legal system is at a level in terms of defending property rights that would allow China to promote such a vehicle. But uh, what is your feeling? The, uh, the you know the, the the wielding of swift payment system as a weapon will get the Chinese thinking about doing something. Have you any ideas what that something? Uh, might be, and it will accelerate, I suspect, given what's been going on. Well, I, I think, first of all, I think it, it's a good question, but your question presupposes that, that the ball is entirely in China's court vis-a-vis the, the internationalization of the RMB and that China has to make some proactive moves or, or reforms to, to attract more investment into RMB securities. And and to an extent, that is true. But also remember that this is a very dynamic game. And ultimately, the the allocation of reserves is also very much tied to what the alternative options and the relative attractiveness uh, of the alternative options. And so it is very clear that US sanction or Western sanctions on Russia has pushed Russia into the arms of the Chinese in terms of its allocation of reserve holdings. But, you know, that, that's I mean, Russia, as significant as, as it is as a military power, is, is really relatively insignificant economically, uh, at least so far as the size of the economy and the size of it, its reserves holdings relative to uh, a lot of other leading major countries. I think when you look at when you look at what's happening, yes, the, the creation of the, the central bank digital currency may incrementally help China remove its depend or reduce its dependency on Western payments and settlements network, but it doesn't yet solve the issue of the availability of Chinese securities in the offshore market. Now, as since China opened up the, the Bond Connect channel and started to open up its bond, domestic bond markets in general, there's actually been quite significant sizable investment into the domestic bond market. And a big reason for that is that Chinese government securities, which tend to be the, the most favoured type of bond bought by international investors, that those securities are yielding much more attractive rates relative to what EGBs or US Treasuries are yielding right now, which is basically diddly squit. You, you've also got the, the, the fact is that the, the Federal Reserve has massively increased the money supply, and you're, you're now starting to see for a long time, they didn't show through, but now you know, you're seeing very loud and clear the inflationary effects that, that are coming through from that. And large reserve holders will be concerned to, to maintain the real value of their, their reserve holdings. And so in that sense, China's relative monetary prudence could outweigh over time some of the, the drawbacks and concerns that reserve, large reserve holders have today about its domestic financial system. 
and legal protections and property rights that, that they enjoy. We have cryptocurrency as the issue of the day. We've discussed it in relation to China, perhaps creating a digital currency. Uh, but we also have a thing now called the stablecoin, which is eff- effectively a dollar-backed cryptocurrency, which is supposed to, like a money market fund, own high-quality liquid uh, instruments. Uh, it's a way for anybody in the world to potentially get access to dollars much more easily than they probably ever could have done through their banking system. At a time when Russians are seemingly queuing at their banks for foreign currency, perhaps even local currency, do you think this opens a portal in the Chinese capital account, which they'll be concerned about, a, a new way for capital to leak from China, contrary to law, but still a destabilizing leak. Technology leaps forward, capital holds open. And is it a challenge for China or just something they've coped with before and, and something that really is not a game changer? I, I think that it, it clearly represents a challenge, not just for China, but but for a lot of countries around the world. It, it, for countries with not fully open capital accounts like China, it does increase the, the potential risk for capital flight over time. For a, a lot of countries, smaller countries that, that don't necessarily have capital, that don't necessarily have capital flight, I mean, it still represents a threat that savers or, or users will start using alternative to the local currency. So uh, I think these innovations present challenges to quite quite a lot of countries, China included. But uh, I think if we can take a step back, China, although a lot of people think of China as having a closed capital account, that has not been the case for quite some time. China, in, in response to very practical needs, so there are more Chinese businesses doing business internationally now than before, there are lots more Chinese students going and studying overseas, there are a lot more Chinese workers going and doing sense of work overseas. And in response to very practical needs, China has started, expanded, or started some time ago, expanding the amount of money that Chinese citizens could bring out of the country is also opened up channels for Chinese investors sitting in the domestic market to invest outside, particularly through the the Stock Connect scheme into Hong Kong. So there are are already significant holes in the the capital account. In fact, I wouldn't even call the capital account closed today. I would call it either semi-closed or or semi-open, depending on whether you're glass half full or half empty sort of person. But so cryptocurrencies or stable coins add to the channels through which Chinese citizens can move money out of the country. The, The question really then becomes... Uh, a number uh, then falls onto a number of other issues. One is the, the relative attractiveness of doing so. And I think for a lot of Chinese private businessmen, if they have doubts about the, the level of property protections that they get and the, the checks and balances on the state that they enjoy or are able to get enjoy as protections, then that there is significant risk that some of those may try and increase the amount of capital that they, they bring offshore. 
China also suffers from the problem that, you know, unlike the US, it's not able to impose FATCA on the rest of the world. And so once that money moves offshore, it's, it doesn't enjoy the, the type of transparency that, you know, that the, US the US Treasury or the US Federal Reserve is able to get on, on what's being done with it. Part of, part of China's way of addressing that is through the, the central bank digital currency, because ultimately that, that settles on a ledger which is entirely transparent to the central bank. And at least for, for large-scale capital flight, even if you even if you even if you're pursuing capital flight you through a stable coin, you ultimately need to convert your domestic currency, the renminbi, into that stable coin or into that cryptocurrency. And the the central bank digital currency potentially gives the Chinese government and the central bank additional levels of transparency, additional levels of control, and therefore additional levels of protection. So in some, se in, in some senses, China is responding to the challenge. I think it remains to be seen how effective that will be and whether the, the Chinese regulators and the Chinese authorities are able to keep ahead of the, the very rapid pace of technological innovation that's taking place in in payments and, and in financial markets overall. I can't stress enough to those listening to us that your book is much broader in scope than what we're discussing. It is really a huge uh, exploration of how the dollar maintained its uh, condition as a reserve currency after Bretton Woods and how China's currency is developed. And uh, it's such a broad scope. We're focusing on a fairly uh, narrow part of it. The, the weaponization of SWIFT uh, it reminds me of a little comment by a famous American investor called Stanley Druckenmiller, who said of Donald Trump, the president has, has discovered the weaponization of the dollar the way a child discovers a water pistol. Now, whatever we may think of uh, Russian activity and the need to do something about it, ultimately, do you think this action does undermine the reserve currency status of the dollar? The fact that people who own the dollar know that it could be well, effectively sequestered uh, and not just the dollar, but people who have money in that system know that it can be sequestered. Is this, whatever its benefits may be to uh, bringing some leverage to Russia, do you think this is a step potentially given that it undermines some of the property rights of those who hold these assets that may ultimately backfire one day, not in the near term, but in the longer term uh, on the United States of America? Well, that, that's that's a wonderful question because actually it... it if you look at if you look at how the history of how the dollar came to dominate international capital flows, a lot of that streams back to the history of the development of the euro dollar markets. And one of the major driving factors of the euro dollar market's creation was the Cold War conflict. So Russian banks that or the, the Russian state that had been holding U.S. dollars in U.S. banks suddenly got nervous about whether those U.S. bank accounts would be frozen in the event of a conflict with the U.S. and so started to move their dollar deposits into European banks to put them out of the, the U.S. 
sanctions net or out of the purview of U.S. regulators. And so the the, the dollars, the, the original drivers of the dollar's emergence as the dominant global currency very significantly lie in the fact that that the U.S. government or, or the, the way that the dollar markets were structured, at least the offshore dollar markets were structured, didn't allow the U.S. government or U.S. regulators to exercise an excessive degree of control. And so now that, that the U.S. has found ways of exercising significant controls and putting huge sanctions on its strategic rivals through the dollar system may actually signal the death knell of the dollar system in the long term because one of the fundamental drivers of its creation or one of the fundamental rationales that underlay its creation has now gone away. Now, that's a process that could take an awfully long time, that there are significant other factors and particularly financial infrastructures that support the dollar's role. But I believe that you're absolutely right in saying that the U.S.'s continued abuse of its influence over the dollar system and particularly the weaponization of the dollar against its strategic rival is one of the biggest factors undermining the dollar's future role as the global, globally predominant currency. We, we could talk all day, James, but we have to get to a final issue at some stage. Given everything we've discussed, the, the Chinese continue to manage their currency against a basket of, of other currencies. Do you think that policy, I mean, any policy like that creates some sort of fetters, some sort of restrictions on domestic monetary policy? Do you think that policy is going to be fit for purpose in this financial cold war? Or do you think we evolve away from that targeting of the RMB against a, a basket of other currencies? I, I think that, the, the frankly, the, the underlying big tectonic movements, particularly around China's demographic profile, is likely to lead to a shift in policy over time because, as you say, the, the constraints of managing to uh, managing its exchange rate to a basket of currency places significant constraints on the Chinese vis-a-vis how fast they can expand their monetary supply and you know how that they can control domestic uh, how they can control domestic rates and so the the, the history the, the history of monetary systems and and of most fiat currencies is that over time governments have generally sought to unfatter themselves so as to to pursue more independent policies. I don't think China's there right now, but I think you know, as the, the pressures of its demographic cliff start to bite, then, then I think that China will likely significantly adjust its policies. 
Well, the Library of Mistakes is about the study of financial history, and I guess one of the great lessons is that no monetary system lasts forever. Uh, whether we can actually say when it comes to an end or not is a different question, but very occasionally uh, investors have to cope with a whole new monetary system, a whole change in the system. And this book, The Financial Cold War, I think is essential reading for someone who's asking those questions. And I don't think there are more important questions to ask. Uh, the real questions are not where interest rates going at the minute. The, the real question is, is there a financial cold war? What are the consequences of it? Do monetary systems change? Are we in one of those structural changes? Your book is a fantastic run through of the development of the post-war monetary system, the imbalances it's caused that we haven't even discussed today in, in society and financial systems, uh, but also sets the scene for where we may be going uh, next, and it comes at a very, sadly, a very opportune time, given the uh, the financial cold war that is now underway, and, and sadly, hot war that is underway between uh, the developed world and and Russia. James, congratulations on the book. It's a, it's a wonderful book, and uh, many thanks for being my guest today in the Library Mistakes podcast. Thank you very much, Russell, for uh, for inviting me to talk with you. To keep up to speed on events at the Library of Mistakes, and to read pieces from our collection please search for and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice. 